You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey family, Ant here, pastor at Midtown Tunach. Very glad that you chose to join with us for our online service as we're looking to continue to worship God as we work our way through the book of First Timothy. If you have a Bible with you or if you, have, you want to use one maybe on an app, you can go ahead and turn to First Timothy chapter 2. We'll get it started in verse 11. A couple things I wanted to do just to prepare us and get us set up well for this passage is to acknowledge that this is a very difficult passage that we will be dealing with today. Very difficult, very challenging. Generally speaking, when I think of passages that are challenging to us, I think of two primary ways that passages are often difficult and challenging for us. The first way is that a passage can just be difficult to understand. There's passages that we go through, you you read it, and at face value, you're wondering, okay, what is this saying? It seems like maybe it's contradicting other parts of Scripture, and it just seems difficult to understand. So that's one way that a passage can be difficult. Another way that a passage can be difficult is that it can be difficult or challenging to accept. There are some passages in the Bible that when you read them, the way you understand them, the way you think about them is in contradiction to the way that we currently think or to our current worldviews. This makes accepting these passages to be very difficult. The Bible is highly confrontational to everyone. In our culture, in previous cultures, I will go as far as to say that if you spend time in the Word a lot, and you don't have any pushback towards anything that you see in the Bible, you're probably in the habit of morphing the Scriptures to fit you and your preferences and your current worldview and your desire. If the Bible is not confronting you in ways that are are challenging and difficult for you to accept, then for you, instead of trying to be conformed into the image of God, you're actually trying to conform. Most likely, you're trying to conform God into your image. You want God to fit you and your desires if the Bible isn't consistently confronting and challenging you and causing your flesh to want to push back against what it's saying. The passage that we'll be in today is challenging for both of those reasons. It's difficult to understand exactly what it is saying, so we'll be applying some very important Bible study practices as we work our way through the passage. And in many ways, the passage is difficult to accept as well, as far as what the Apostle Paul is writing to the young pastor at Ephesus, Timothy, in this letter, as he is instructing him on how the church should function and operate. Let's begin by, I'll just read verses 11 through 15. And then we'll begin by growing in our understanding of this text. Of course, as I said, it, is, it can be challenging to understand. So I'll just read verses 11 through 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love in holiness with self-control. New Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg goes as far as to say that verse 12 that that I just read is the single most scrutinized verse in Scripture in recent scholarship. This establishes, of course, as I said a little bit earlier, this one can be challenging and difficult to understand 
And on the note that it's challenging and difficult to accept, I'll say that this passage for me is one of those teachings in the Bible that is most difficult for me personally to accept. There's things about it that I feel like I don't fully understand and grasp, and I find in myself a desire to push back against what I see and how I understand this passage. But as followers of Jesus who love his word, we need to remember that when we disagree with the Bible, we are wrong and the Bible is right. In week chapter one of this series, one of the things that we went over that the Apostle Paul in this letter says about the church is that it is to be a pillar of the truth, that we hold up the truth, that we defend the truth, that we stand and contend for the truth that we find in God's word. We seek to do things God's way. And if you're a member of our church, I believe that this sermon will be particularly helpful for you as you understand how we seek to apply what we see in this passage in the life of our church. So we want to work through this passage as faithfully as we possibly can, as the Apostle Paul is speaking specifically about women and their function and operation in leadership capacities in our church. With that said, anytime you're studying the Bible, whether you find uh, the topic to be particularly difficult and challenging or not, it's always important to make sure that we understand the context of the scriptures that we are reading. So I want to spend a little bit of time making sure we understand the context in which this letter is written. So within the book of 1 Timothy, this comes right before Paul begins to explain the qualifications of an overseer, whom a word that is often interchangeable with, with elder or pastor. Uh, and also he talks about deacons in the next chapter as well. So we, I'll come back to it in a, in a little bit later. But it's important to note that this comes right before he goes into the specific qualifications for, for those positions. Uh, it's also important to understand what's going on in the context of the church of Ephesus as well. There were some women in the church that were doing a lot of harm with their words. They actually get addressed by Paul uh, in chapter 5 when he talks about the, their speech being unhelpful to the church. That, that, that chapter talks about them going from house to house and things, them saying things that they should not be saying. So there's some specific things going on uh, within the church at Ephesus that I believe influences the way that Paul writes this passage. So that's a bit of context about the letter of 1 Timothy itself. But we also need to make sure we look at the context of the entire Bible as well. All the books of the Bible fit into the overall narrative of Scripture. So we want to make sure we understand specifically what we see in Genesis chapter 1. I'll look at verses 26 through 27, where we see God talking about men and women, specifically creating both man and woman. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it reads, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Humans were created, as verse 26 stated, to rule over the other creatures, to rule over creation. God delegates his authority to them, both man and woman, which is the thing that dignifies the value and worth of man and woman over all creation. They are both created with capacity and responsibility to rule over God's creation. He did this with both men and women. Now, there are distinctions between the two. This is, in fact, one of the first things that I noticed about this passage is it's very clear that gender is not something that is, full, that is socially constructed, but rather a construct of God. Now, obviously, 
different cultures put different stereotypes and things like that on men and women, and those things can be constructed socially, but the essence of it, the distinction between man and woman is created and established from the very mind and heart of God. We also see equality between men and women in this passage. Equal worth, equal value, equal dignity, equal ability to show off God's glory as his image bearers. Men are not better than women. Women are not better than men. As a disclaimer, just because they're equal doesn't mean, again, that there aren't distinctions. It it is possible for people to have distinctions in roles but still have equality in value and in worth and in dignity. For example, it's very clear that God the Father and God the Son have different roles in our salvation, in Christ coming to save us. We don't have time to turn there, but you can, if you want to look at this in your own time, you can look at Ephesians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, you can look at John chapter 6, you can look at Matthew chapter 26 as well, where we see that Jesus oftentimes takes a submissive role to the Father. He's every bit as much of God as the Father is, but they have different roles in the accomplishing of our salvation. There are consistent distinctions between their roles throughout the layout of Scripture. The Trinity shows us that it is possible to have equal dignity, equal worth, equal value, and at the same time have distinction in role. Now that we've looked at some context, let's go back into our primary passage for the day. I'll get back into it starting at verse 11. Paul writes, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Another important practice whenever studying the Bible is to make sure that we remember that the Bible never contradicts itself. So whenever you read a text at face value and it seems contradictory to another text that you're familiar with that is very clear and plain, there needs to be some type of comparison between the two and try to think how can we understand both of these to be true without contradicting each other. For me, when I first read this passage, it seems to contradict what I see in other places in the Bible. For example, Titus chapter 2, verse 3, we see Paul instructing women to teach. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see Paul giving instruction to women about how they are to conduct themselves as they prophesy amongst the body of believers in times of worship. So we can't conclude that Paul is saying that women can't contribute to the church by using their voices. So let's examine the word quiet specifically in this verse. I did a little research on the, the Greek word that is translated quiet in this verse, and it, came with two, it, it showed me two different definitions, that, two, two different things that this specific Greek word can be used to say. The first thing that it possibly can be talking about is just complete silence, a, a lack of noise, a lack of volume. Or it could mean ceasing from bustle. Bustle often refers to when something is moving around with a lot of energy and noise, often in a way that draws attention to itself. So based on this word, depending on the way the word is used, it could mean making absolutely no noise, or it could be talking about not being a distraction and drawing attention to one's self. So we need to use context clues to try to figure out which meaning of this word applies specifically to this passage. Also, worth noting when we look at the context of this verse, that the Greek word that is translated quiet here is the noun form of the word that he uses in verse 2 when he urges Christians to pray. And I quote verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life 
godly, and dignified in every way. That Paul just said that it is his desire, whatever this word quiet means, that this be the case for all Christians. This is not something that he is only ascribing to, to women within the church, but this is actually his desire for everyone. This leads me to believe that he's not saying that women should not be allowed to speak in a worship service or amongst uh, people in the church, but rather that they shouldn't be a disturbance or a distraction to the worship service, which, not ironically, if you were with us last week, is exactly what I was saying. That passage is actually about that women, that women shouldn't be a distraction and men should not be a distraction to the worship of Christ and Christ being central within the church, not just in times of worship, but also in the everyday life of the church as well. But Paul doesn't just say that women aren't to be disruptive. There's more work that we have to do. He also says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise, exercise authority over a man. What might he mean when he says he doesn't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man? He can't mean that she can't give words of encouragement to God's people because as we've established, he's already, we've already seen that he permits women to prophesy. See 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'd also say that he doesn't mean that women can't lead in ministry in the church. I say this because of a couple things that we see in Romans chapter 16. I'll just look at verses 1 and verse 2, or verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to them as he's concluding this letter, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea. Not sure exactly how to pronounce that. So the word there for servant is the Greek word diakonos. It's the same word that's translated deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the very next chapter that we'll be getting into next week. The word can at times just refer to someone who is serving people in general, someone who's a servant, or it can refer to that specific office of deacon. And I believe here he's saying that she holds the office of deacon because Paul refers to Phoebe as a deacon in a way that he doesn't anywhere else in Scripture. Paul uses this word a variety of times, but he usually calls people a, a, a deacon slash servant of the Lord. But here he says that she is a deacon slash servant of a specific church, which he doesn't do any other place in Scripture. This leads me to believe that Paul is saying that this, she is in the office of deacon in this church. She is a deacon of the church at Centrea, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Leads me to believe that, in some, that she is in this type of a leadership role within that church. We continue on in verse 2. He says that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. The definition of this Greek word that's interpreted patron here or translated patron here can mean a woman set over others, a female guardian, protectress, patroness, caring for the affairs of others and aiding them with her resources. These two points indicate to me that it's likely that she was in a leadership role within the church. And we see that Paul, as again, next week we'll get into chapter 3, where we see that Paul talks about ordaining others into this role. Paul states these things about women right before, about the teaching and the authority, right before he goes on to explain the office of overseer. It's a term that we often use, well, a term that we often don't use. We use the term pastor instead, but that word is interchangeable, overseer, elder, and pastor. The term overseer that he uses in chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
that word in and of itself has a connotation of one who is in authority. The Greek word there means inspection or visitation. It's what happens when someone in authority comes in, looks at something, examines it, and then determines and and sets out a course forward to either improve or continue on the right path that is there. It's like when the FDA comes in and looks at a restaurant and makes sure they're handling food in the proper way, and they let the restaurant know if they are doing anything wrong or if they're doing everything correctly. And if they're doing something wrong, they let them know what needs to be done to fix it. So before he gets into the qualifications of the office, he refers to them as overseers, those who are in a position of authority, those who have the responsibility to look at the church and say, okay, this is going well, let's keep doing this, or this is not going well, we're going to change direction, and here's what we're going to do now going forward. Exercising authority is a big responsibility of an overseer, elder, pastor, or whatever is the highest office in the church, because different churches use different terms for that position. Another big distinction in the office of overseer is that they are called to be able to teach. Paul actually gives 14 different qualifications for overseers, or in our terms, pastors. 13 of them are character requirements, and one of them is a skill. And we see it at the end of verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, here's the one capability, able to teach. I say that being an authority and teaching are distinctives of the office of overseer because just a few verses later in chapter 13, Paul gives the qualifications of deacons as well. And nowhere in that description or in those qualifications is there anything about being an overseer or being an authority. And also nothing in those qualifications is about being able to teach. So just to summarize what we just said, Paul talks about women not teaching and being in authority within the church. And then immediately afterwards, he goes into this specific office of of elders and the qualifications of elders where we see the the very constant presence of this idea of, of oversight and leadership authority and also the ability to teach. I believe that maybe the biggest conclusion that we should draw from verse 12 in chapter 2 is that Paul is saying that in God's order, the office of overseer is to be fulfilled by men. Now, when I say that, I want you to hear very clearly what I am not saying. I'm not saying men are more capable to lead than women. I do not believe that to be the case. I'm not saying men are more capable of providing oversight than women. I do not believe that to be the case either. I'm not saying that we only have male pastors because God has given men more ability or competency or capacity to accomplish this role than women. I do not believe that to be the case at all. And honestly, I'm not saying that I fully understand why God has ordered it that way. But I am saying whether we understand it or not, whether we agree with it or not, we are to be the pillar of truth as God's people, and we submit to God's word no matter what. As an overseer, I do see it as part of my role to make sure our church follows in this as this is, as as best as I can understand it, what Paul is teaching us in this passage. Now, many will say that Paul gives this instruction because back then women weren't educated, and that's no longer the case now, so many believe that Paul wouldn't have advised the church in this way today. And I have two very specific responses to that, even though I do realize that there are very Um, sound, theologically Christian believers who would differ from where I land and where we as a church land on this specific issue, my response would be, uh, one of my favorite study Bibles states that 
there is actually a significant amount of evidence that a number of well-educated women were present in that part of Asia Minor where Ephesus is. Uh, also, I would respond by saying when Paul begins to give the reason for his instruction, he doesn't back it up with current cultural tradition. He backs, it, he backs his argument with what happened during the creation of man and women and, and in what happened during the fall back in Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 3. Excuse me. So we see this taking place back in verses 12 through 14, where Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Here's where he gives his reasoning. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He says that this is the case because of the order of creation and what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Another necessary Bible study practice is when the Bible tells us specific things to do, we have to have an eye for both principles and practices. Principles are always universal and specific practices are sometimes universal and sometimes specific for a time and place while we figure out how to live out those those principles, those universal principles in our own culture and in our own time and in our own place. For example, In the New Testament, on multiple occasions, the Apostle Paul tells the believers, the the followers of Jesus there, to greet one another with a holy kiss. This was a very common way of displaying love and affection and unity amongst the brothers and sisters in the faith. And Paul is saying, yes, continue this on, do it in a holy way as believers, as followers of Jesus. It it would have been universally recognized where they were as something that that was good and appropriate and proper to do. Now, obviously, in our cultural context, kissing is not seen in the same way. And so that is not something that I believe we as believers have to do, that specific practice of the holy kiss. But we do want to apply the principle, the universal principle that is there of us showing love and greeting each other with warmth and with love. So we do, I do encourage that we use some, t- some form of, of, of a physical contact to greet each other, maybe a handshake, maybe a hug if we're comfortable with that, or a fist pound if that's what you're into. Now, in the case of women in the position of overseer, elder, pastor, we see that Paul is saying that he isn't getting this practice from anything or the specific application of who is to be in the office of overseer, elder, and pastor. He's not getting it from something culturally specific, but rather what happened in the book of Genesis in the first three chapters, which leads me and our family of churches to believe that this principle actually transcends cultures and times and places because it seems to be have taken place before the different cultures were established within the earth. Which means, among other things, that Adam didn't do anything to earn the right to be in his specific role, to be created first. He didn't earn that right. Adam is the one that we have on record in the Bible that God told not to eat of the tree, and he watched his wife eat of the tree, and then he ate himself. So none of this is about who who is most capable. It is strictly rooted in the order of creation that we see in Genesis verses chapters 1, 2, and 3, excuse me. It is about following God's order. So how do we as a church at Midtown Tunach put this into practice? How do we seek to follow this as much as we possibly can as a church? Number one, we don't have women in the office of the highest authority, which for us is pastor and elder. We do intentionally try to have women serving, and hear me in this, in every other leadership role in our church is my goal. Currently have women serving in life group leader roles. We have women, a woman who is coaching currently 
We have women deacons. We have women leading and directing in our kid town areas ministry, our worship leaders, coordinators of different ministries like our host team. We, we intentionally try to make sure that women are serving our church and using their giftedness in many ways within our church. We don't have women preach in the central preaching role in our church, which is the sermon, which goes in the very middle of our service. This is largely because I believe this is the most authoritative form of teaching that, occur, that occurs in our church, which I believe God has ordained for men, specifically prioritized by elders. And I do want to be clear when I say this. That is not because I believe women are, I mean, men are better teachers than women somehow. I don't think that's the case. It's actually because I believe this is what it looks like for us to submit to God's word. And I believe this is what this passage would lead us to do. We do intentionally have women teaching, encouraging, and instructing in almost every other avenue in our church. So life group leader trainings in our life groups class, in scripture reading in our church, in our service right before the sermon. With this one specifically, we actually desire more women in our church to lead us and encourage us and serve our church in this role of scripture reading, which we also use as a time of exhorting our church as well before the sermon. In our teaching team, Generally speaking, every sermon that is delivered in our family of churches has been looked over by others in the church. We believe that that counsel is very helpful and a protection to our church. Part of the reason we believe this is because of what we see in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, where it reads, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So we want to have an abundance of counselors giving wise counsel to, to this very important part of our church. And we invite women to teaching team because we don't want that counsel to only be coming from men. And we want to make sure we have women leading and using their giftedness, including the gift of teaching and also knowledge and wisdom to bless us because we need that in our church. We don't do that so that we can try to be politically correct or anything like that. We do this because we believe this is a need in our church. This is important. This is vital to the church living as God has called the church to live, that we have men voices and, and women voices as well playing into the teaching and the proclaiming of God's word in our church. And even with all of that said, I know that even though we do that, this is still a very difficult thing for women in our church, women who aren't in our church and but maybe are part of churches that view this the way that we do. And that makes all the sense in the world. Not being able to know it by experience, but just from my point of view, it seems reasonable that this will be very difficult, especially when we have women in our church that are very gifted, very knowledgeable, very capable, very wise, very mature in our church that love the Lord. And I just wanted to acknowledge that I understand that this, why this might be very difficult as much as I can understand it from, from my role. And I'm grateful for all the, the women in our church that this is difficult for, uh, but that seek to walk in step with what we believe God is calling us to as a church. The last verse in this passage is one also that theologians oftentimes do not agree on. And I'll try to explain it the way that I understand it best in an attempt to encourage the way that the Bible ascribes much dignity and worth and value to women. So with all of this that Paul is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that, that Paul would sense that how what he's saying to women might be coming across as difficult to hear or harsh. And so he, he shifts gears. The beginning of verse 15, he uses the term yet, which lets you know he's about to make a contrast to something uh, that he was saying before. Not that he's contradicting himself, but, but he's taking his conversation in a slightly different direction where he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing 
if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's very difficult to, to interpret. Many disagree on what it means. I look at what he I look at the pronoun he uses when he says she in this verse. And I ask myself, who is the she that he's talking about in this verse? Is he talking about women in general or is there someone specific that he's talking about? And then I remember in the two previous verses, verse 13 and 14, that he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That in the previous two verses, he's actually talking about Eve. So when I see him use the word she in verse 15, I believe that he is still talking about Eve. So he talks about Adam was, was formed and created before Eve and that Eve was deceived and became a transgressor. So I believe he's referring to Eve and she comes to, to know and be able to understand about God's salvation through the promise that God made to her after Adam and Eve sinned. Remember now, if you're familiar with this story, Adam does not receive a promise after the curse is, is, is beginning to be pronounced over creation. Adam does not receive a promise, but Eve does receive a promise. She was promised that a descendant of hers that will come obviously as a result of childbearing, that a descendant of hers would come that would defeat the serpent, that would actually crush the serpent's head. He's going to undo everything and all the wrong that sin has caused in the earth. That's a promise that went to Eve that would be fulfilled through childbirth. She and every other woman that has sinned because of the lies of the enemy would be able to walk in victory through faith in Christ because of woman's ability to give physical life from generation to generation and to give birth to the one who would come and give us eternal life. I believe Paul is saying that in the Genesis account that he's been referencing, he understands how it might, may, might be difficult to hear. And so he's saying, hey, listen, but that isn't the end of the story. Eve being deceived isn't the end of the story. No, there, there's more glory that comes afterwards when God uses woman to give birth to salvation, the one who is the resurrection and the life, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. So the Apostle Paul in this passage in the Bible, in, so the Apostle Paul in this passage and the Bible in general is not demeaning to women. I want you to consider something, and these are two monumental things that occur in the Bible, one early in the Old Testament and one early in the New Testament. Early in the Old Testament, as I just said, this promise of salvation was made directly to Eve. He was talking specifically to Eve when he promised the Savior that's going to come and defeat the serpent, the enemy who deceived them. And then early on in the New Testament as well, when Jesus was, was raised from the dead, when he was resurrected, the first who saw the empty tomb were women, and the first who proclaimed our resurrected Savior were women. So you have these two huge monuments, one who, that, that, is, that is foreshadowing, that is proclaiming the salvation of God, that he's going to come through the, the lineage of Eve, and he's going to do away with the curse of sin for all who follow him, was, was a promise that was made specifically to Eve. And then you also have this first proclamation of this occurrence of the resurrection, which validates that Jesus actually is the one that can defeat death and actually undo the curse of sin was first proclaimed by women. So then what is true of the proclaiming of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus, for anyone who proclaims a resurrected Savior, they are walking in the footsteps of those women who went to the tomb first. I understand myself every Sunday as I proclaim our resurrected Lord to be following in the, in the legacy of these women who love Jesus and went about proclaiming the fact that death had been defeated and Jesus had gotten out of the grave. The Bible 
does not demean women. When we look at the Bible, we, we must celebrate all these, these glories, wonderful contributions. It is my understanding that Paul is concluding this chapter by affirming the dignity and importance and vital role of women, really in the salvation of God's creation and God reconciling all things to himself. He's affirming this dignity. And to all the women in our church, it is my prayer that you would draw the same conclusion about God and about our church. That even though we see distinctions between men and women and restrictions from the highest authoritative role within the church, that you will look at it and see that we still very much affirm the dignity, importance, and vital role of the women in general, and women in our world in general, and our sisters in the faith particularly. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for instructing us. Father, I just wanted to extend a special prayer for uh, anyone who, who struggles with this teaching, with, with these verses. Uh, Father, help us to seek you thoroughly. Help us to seek to be the pillar of truth that you created us to be. Help us to see the truth of the distinctions you have between men and women. Help us to see the truth that you are not demeaning in your word to men or women, but you created both in your image, after your likeness, able to glorify you, both needed, both very necessary. Father, I pray that you would prevent the enemy from bringing any type of division to us, to our church, uh, based on things that were said here, based on your word. Help us to walk in unity in your order. Uh, the way you design your church to function. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.